come to you now, and we thank you for our time. Uh, I pray that you would sober us up from anything that we may need uh, to be sobered up from. I pray that you would remove distractions. I pray that you would uh, really capture our hearts and our minds so that as we read your law, as we look at your will, your purposes, as you, as you have laid them out and your breathed out word, I pray that we would be um, overwhelmed, encouraged, uh, directed, warned. Lord, as we continue to work through some really detailed portions of Scripture, I pray that you would keep us mindful of the fact that in infinite wisdom, you made your plans before time existed. So all the plans that we're seeing play out from the details to the tabernacle to the details of the priestly garments to the details of the altars and the incense and the, uh, the washing basin and uh, a number of other things, the, the curtains, the, everything from the Holy of Holies to the temple courts to how the sacrifice is made to what Aaron and his sons are supposed to do as priests. To the stitching on the fabric that would hang in different areas. To the bases, to the acacia wood, and the things overlaid in gold. God, there's so many details. And I pray that we would remember as we are studying them that it might be hard to continue to sort of wade through details, but those are an expression of your infinite wisdom that existed from before time. And then after your plans were made in infinite wisdom, you breathed time into existence so that there might be a platform for those plans. And one day time will melt back into eternity, and when it does... For believers, for followers of Christ, all of this matters greatly. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. I don't know if any of us are even remotely equipped or trustworthy or dependable or able in any way to really move forward faithfully if, as Christians if we don't spend time in the word. Lord, just as the psalmist cried out that, that he would be free from affliction. Uh, the purpose of that was not just freedom for the sake of being free. His desire was to walk according to your statutes, to proclaim your truths, to know your truths fully so that you might be honored as we share them with others. Lord, let us treasure uh, your word. Lord, let us see the privilege it is to, uh, to go to it tonight and to study and to have conversations. Lord, I thank you for Christ. I thank you that as we work through details in the Exodus uh, story, that none of those details are void of a very real Savior that was being represented in all of it. And so I pray that you would help us to make those connections tonight. I've trusted you in the preparation of this, and I pray that I would continue to trust you and lean on you in the, in the delivery of it. We love you very much, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, Exodus 30. We've got in one chapter, we're kind of making a jump. Last time we met, well, last week we went over some details on making sure that we're okay with our paradigms being challenged and making sure that we're, um, it was our paradigms being challenged and then seeing uh, this big picture of, of how much there is really that we don't know that God is continually revealing to us through his word. And then um, the time before that, we saw a shift in Exodus where we shifted from all of the focus of the tabernacle and its furnishings and its utensils to the priests and the priestly garments and the, and the priestly responsibilities. So we made that shift, and now we're shifting back again to sort of a handful of tabernacle details and furnishings that, for reasons we'll look at tonight, weren't included in the first batch. So we're, we're looking back now tonight, shifting back to the furnishing of the tabernacle, and before we look at some questions and dive into the text, I want us to remember that we're sort of working backwards. As Christians alive today, we're sort of working backwards when we study Exodus. Uh, what I mean by that is most of what we know about worship and sacrifice and song and being aromatic and offering and needing to be clean we know those things as Gentiles post-crucifixion and post-resurrection. So we have this stuff that we walk in that it's not until we crack open these pages that we realize what we're actually walking in. Um, we didn't grow up in Jewish homes studying the first five books of the Old Testament where it was the norm for the children to have them memorized in early childhood. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would memorize them. That's how familiar they were. And as I've been studying this, and I see every week I open it up, I'm like, seriously, I didn't know that. Really? I've never heard that. Really? I've never made that connection. I'm just very aware of how much there is for us to, to gain from, from our time in Exodus. Um, uh, and how much there is that we walk in that we may not know the real substance of. I was trying to think of a great example. And sadly, the first one that came to mind was this. You could liken it to Karate Kid 3, the one with the girl, um, being your favorite movie. Not knowing that Karate Kid 1 existed and, and the Karate Kid series was so much better. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Isn't that the best example you've ever heard? Like you just had this movie with this girl in Karate Kid and you had no, you had no knowledge of Ralph Macchio and like the, his beginning relationship with Mr. Miyagi and how awesome it was. Um, it, it'd be like finding that out after you had already established that Karate Kid 3 was your favorite movie. It's so much better in the complete story. Prepare to have your minds blown. Um, another example I was thinking of was... Uh, uh, has anyone actually seen all the Karate Kids in here? <laughs> yeah, there's like one. That, that's when you raise your hand expecting other people to raise your hand and kind of do that. Um, I was thinking about when I gave Ella her first fishing pole. She was so excited, really had no idea what it was or what it was for. Um, it, had, it, was, it was a pink Dora rod. I had used it for years. I gave it to her. And uh, she, she took it, she held it upside down the wrong way, and attached to the end of the line was this little pink plastic fish. And so upside down, she sat in the front yard, and she threw it out there, and she 
kind of reel it back in the wrong way with the wrong hand and throw it out there and reel it back in, figure out how to throw it a new way and figure out how to cast. And then one day I, I take her to a pond. I turn it over. I so say, we hold it like this. You put, a, you put a hook on the end of the line. You throw it out there and there's fish. And hopefully we catch a fish and we bring it in. And it was like she had this thing she had been playing with a lot, but it wasn't until later that she realized, oh, the, there's a bigger picture here. I was using it. I didn't even know what I was doing. And it's, and it's for more than just throwing the plastic fish out in the front yard. There's, some, there's a bigger picture here that, that's, that's to be enjoyed. Um, I was thinking about if you used a tool the wrong way for years and then finding out its proper use. You ever go to a shop and you find a tool that sort of obscure looking, you're not, you're not sure what it's used for, but you decide you're going to use it to um, hold something up or, <laughs> or something like that. Or it's the doorstop. Yeah, you know, the doorstop is usually what it is if it's heavy. And then someone says, do you know what that's for? And they pick it up and they show you, you're like, oh, I get it. There's a bigger picture here. I was thinking about, in a more realistic example, I took the supper for years. I mean, I took the Lord's Supper for years, not realizing the significance of the Passover lamb, not realizing all of the details of the Exodus and the winged destroyer being God and the, being covered in the blood of the lamb, consumed completely uh, exactly as, as, it, as it was supposed to be done by the way God said. And then we take that supper, we do it in specific remembrance. I took it for years and didn't realize the big picture. I didn't see my story as the story of a people. <coughs> I didn't see my story as the story of a people. And the result was that I was kind of narrow-minded and didn't realize how deep the pool really was that I was even in. So I say all this to show that we are in a sense working backwards in our Exodus study. We have these things like worship and sacrifice and offering and Lord's Supper, and they're sort of a normal part of our everyday lives and our everyday lingo. But in the chapters of Exodus, we really begin to understand what it all means and how it's all connected and uh, how it's to really be understood and how it's to really be applied. Because after I realized the significance of the Passover lamb and the Exodus and my story being the story of a people that started a long time ago, it, it changed the way I took the supper. It changed my remembrance. My remembrance didn't just go back to when I was eight years old and I got to take it for the first time because I had been baptized. My remembrance went back thousands of years to the story of a people. So here we are, and Moses is on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. With all the details that we've gone through, remember, none of it's actually happened yet, which is weird. If you're ever reading through Exodus, you're reading all these details and all these things and how they're supposed to play out. And I actually... In the margin of my Bible, at the end of chapter 30, I wrote crazy that none of this has actually happened yet uh, to this point. So there's still much more to come. But 40 days and 40 nights receiving the law from the Lord. And the details that the Lord shares <coughs> are very, very specific. And where the details aren't exhaustive, uh, the Lord, uh, Moses is taken aside and actually shown by God how certain things are built and fashioned and and according to the way that I showed you it, like this little workshop, the Sinai, you know, side business thing over there. And uh, in these details, uh, we've learned thus far uh, a lot. And so as we climb into this sort of final chapter about some of the furnishings, um, what have we learned thus far about God's design and purpose for his people? What are some sort of benchmark, high point, don't forget these things. What have we learned about God's design and purpose for his people? 
like a, a gimme. It's a lob. It's what have we seen in Exodus? What have we learned about God's design and purpose for his people through all the details that he shared? Yeah. Yeah, very specific and no variation from his plan. What else? Yeah, he keeps his covenant. Absolutely. Say that again. Yeah, he he doesn't forget. What else? Yeah, God is unwaveringly steadfast. What's the point of the book of Exodus? Say that again. Deliverance? Absolutely. Yeah. From slavery? Redemption of a remnant? Absolutely. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 10 in chapter 30 and see if we can't get some more details here. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Exodus 30. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. So how long, what's a cubit? About 18 inches. So y'all try to picture what this would look like in your heads. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be a square. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet you. That's the words of God. Make sure you put it in the right place. You know, that place where I will meet you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So what is the golden altar, the altar of incense to be used for? Burning incense. Burning authorized incense, which leads to what is it not to be used for? No burnt offerings, no grain offerings, no drink offerings, and no unauthorized incense. Why do you think it is said not to use, he says not to use it for those things? 
Yeah. Which is where? Which, which, which was the other altar? What was it called? Is it the other gold altar? Platinum. Silver. What is it? Bronze. There you go. The bronze altar is where, is where we have those sacrifices made and those offerings given. Now, uh, turn to Romans 8, 33. Romans 8, 33 through 34. says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Listen closely. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Turn back to Exodus. My question is this, how does this verse inform the golden altar? What are the parallels we see, and what do we see about Christ? Mm-hmm. Okay, specific, pur- pur- specific purpose that we see in the golden altar and in what Christ came uh, to earth for. Close to where God dwells, this golden altar and Christ. And what are they doing in that closeness? Interceding. Okay, so intercessions are being made at the golden altar with what? Incense, okay, which is a what to God? A pleasing aroma. And what is Christ doing right this very second? Interceding for who? Us. How? Yeah, exactly. Is, Is Jesus sitting next to God right now trying to point out the good things that we're doing while shielding his eyes from the bad things we're doing? No. What is the pleasing aroma in the presence of God that is interceding for us? Sunday school answer. What? Yeah? Yeah? How is he interceding? Is he pointing out the good things? He's saying, oh, his righteousness, absolutely. The thing that's pleasing to God is the beauty and the perfection that is Christ. He's not pointing out the good things we're doing and and shielding God's eyes from the bad things we're doing. That's not that kind of interceding. He's not trying to make a case for us based on our works. He himself is the pleasing aroma to God. 
A.W. Pink says the altar speaks of Christ himself, and the incense was a figure both of his intercession and the praises which he presents to God. He is constantly engaged before God on behalf of his redeemed, presenting to the Father in the sweet fragrance of his own perfections, both the petitions and worship of his people. The position occupied by the golden altar confirms this. So here's my next question. Now, this, we're going to dig. We're going to have to dig a little bit. We're going to have to think a little bit. And it's so worth it because of the riches that's here. What is the difference between the way that we see Christ in the bronze altar and the way that we see Christ in the golden altar? We see Christ in both. We've talked about how uh, Dever makes the point, um, if it does not first speak of Christ, it does not then speak to the Christian. So we saw Christ when we were studying the bronze altar. We saw Christ uh, in, in the sacrifices. We see Christ in the, in the priestly responsibilities. We see Christ in, in all these different parts. What's the difference between the way we saw Christ in the bronze altar and the golden altar? What do you mean by that? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what happened on the bronze altar? Blood was shed. Like how much? Lots and lots and lots all the time. What would you say the bronze altar was a place of? What are some words you could use to describe it? Death, sacrifice. So in the bronze altar, we see the death of Christ. We see the one who was both priest and sacrifice, perfectly pleasing to God, final, no need to follow it up with anything else, huge, huge sacrifice made for the people. That's what we see in Christ in the bronze altar. Now, how does that different from how we see Christ in the golden altar? There's no death on the golden altar. What else? Yeah, it's, it's in the most holy place. It's in this exalted position. It's made of gold and, instead of bronze. We see the, uh, the bronze altar is uh, a place of death, a place of significant sacrifice, uh, enduring judgment. And then in the golden altar, we see Christ risen from the grave, alive evermore, maintaining the interests of his people before God's throne, presenting all his own excellency and preciousness to God on behalf of the people. The difference between the two is immensely significant, and it shows us a lot about how we view Christ. Would we prefer to have uh, a bunch of crosses hanging on the wall with Christ still on them or Christ no longer on them? No longer on them. Yeah, he's, he's not dead. We, when we go and worship, we, we don't worship 
a Christ who is still on a cross. We worship uh, Christ who is risen and seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for his people. Do y'all see the love that God shows to his children? Do you see his compassion in that? Right now in the presence of God interceding for us, not just trying to make a case for us because we're losers who can't make a case for ourselves, but lovingly, compassionately giving of himself eternally, an eternal servant. It says in John that um, when he returns, he will we'll be seated at a table and Jesus will serve us. We won't have sin. It's, it's crazy. That is in, I mean, that should blow our minds. He's serving now, loving King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who has conquered death, serving on behalf of his people in the presence of a holy God, enjoying that sweet union. And when, even when we are in heaven, there, there will still be service. He'll be serving. That should encourage us to be servant-hearted. It should encourage us to love it should encourage us to be filled with compassion, and it should encourage us to really make sure that our perspective of who our God is and what he's doing is right. We're not entitled. We're not deserving, but we are very, very blessed. Turn to Psalm 141. One forty-one, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Turn to Revelation 5, 8. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What is the incense likened to in both those verses? Whose prayers? The saints' prayers, our prayers. So then how do these verses Exodus, Psalm 141, and Revelation 5, how do they inform our prayers? Continual throughout all generations? Absolutely. Pleasing a Roman to God? Close to where God dwells. Our prayers don't stop at the ceiling. Now, I want y'all to picture Moses, or Aaron, I'm sorry, Aaron. Let's say it's day eight into this whole process. Let's say everything's built. They're carrying out the priestly duties. Let's say it's day eight, nine, 12, whatever you feel comfortable with. It has to be more than a week. I'm not comfortable with anything less. Um, and let's say that it's morning and you smell the sacrifice and then you smell the incense. What's triggered in your mind in the morning and in the evening when you smell that? What, what are the thoughts that would go through your mind 
as a freed Jewish slave in the presence of God, worshiping in the wilderness here. When you smell that, what, what, would, you, what would you think? Would you be indifferent? Would you be indifferent and uncaring? No. So we have answers to give then if we're not indifferent. Yeah. 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 You, you smell that sacrifice. You smell that incense. And my hope would be that the hearts of the worshipers would be full of thanks. What would we have to be thankful for, or at least what would we be reminded of being thankful for in that moment? God is present. This desert-dwelling nomadic people who have experienced harsh slavery for most of their lives now are in the presence of God. God is in their midst, to use a good Christian-y word, midst. Yeah, God's there. That's a huge deal. What else? Think about all of the aromatic connotations. That's what I'm looking for here. Okay, when, let me take a step back. When you smell cookies, what do you think? Fresh baked cookies, what do you think? Greatness, I'm hungry, what else? I want one. What else? Comfort. Oh, yes. Maybe, maybe I need a glass of milk immediately. My mind goes to where is the milk. I can pour that cookie. Enjoy. Don't bother me for the next five minutes while I enjoy this cookie. Okay. There's things that are triggered with that aroma. You walk in from a long day and you smell like brisket or something, like something really aromatic. It's like, oh. Yes, that's good. Some of y'all are like, sick, I hate brisket. Um, or you smell steamed vegetables. Whatever. They don't smell unless you have butter in them. So, um, But I'm saying, what I'm getting at is there's sort of these aromatic connotations. I believe that when the camp smelled the offering, and when they smelled the incense. They know the purpose of all of these utensils. They know the details that went into the, the tabernacle. So what I would see there is people saying, there is a priest making intercession for us. God is present. We have been redeemed because of the work of another. We are forgiven because of the sacrifice of the innocent. We are accepted because God made a way for us to be accepted. When they smell that incense going up, they realize that is an aroma that is pleasing to God. And if it's pleasing to God, it's pleasing to me. What happens if they don't smell it one night? What are the thoughts that go through the head of the Jewish worshiper? What's wrong? Yeah. Where's the, the aroma of the incense? Where's the aroma of the sacrifice? What is going wrong? Now, how does that inform our prayers? 
Continue in them. How many days has it been since you've prayed? I'm hoping this is convicting. The incense is representative of prayer. You didn't pray this morning? What's wrong? There's something out of place. You didn't acknowledge the Lord today? What's wrong? You didn't see your life as an aroma to God and then to others? Well, something must be out of place. Are the priests okay? Did someone lose the incense? Is the Spirit not here? This informs our prayers. When we see that incense, when we think what's happening there, we need to realize that all of this we have completely in Christ now. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest. We have access to the Holy of Holies. It would be like to not take care of the incense and the candles or the, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the lamps would be like having access to the Holy of Holies and neglecting prayer. We don't neglect prayer. It's been the, the right to pray has been purchased at a high cost for us. We should respond by why what, something is a, totally wrong. If it's not, if, if the incense, the aroma of our prayers and our praises is not before God continually. Look at verses 11 through 15 in Exodus 31. 30, sorry. This gets weird. We don't have a whole lot of time, so that's going to be weirder. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Like, pay attention to what's being read here. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garaz, in case you were wondering. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. This is a voluntary requirement. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. If you want to use this as reason for flat tax, uh, everyone should pay the same amount, you are sorely misusing the text. So if you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I think it, don't go there. Um, that's really, really bad use of the word in my opinion, uh, but I don't think it's just an opinion. Um, admittedly, this section can come across as very odd at first glance. Why? What is being said here? What is being required of the people voluntarily? To buy atonement for their lives? What? Yeah, that hits me a little weird. What are we talking about? I love the aromatic prayers and the Holy of Holies. and the, That's wonderful. Uh, buying atonement with money. What's happening here? What is going on? What is this census text? Now, um, turn to Isaiah 55.1. Keep your finger in Exodus, but turn to Isaiah 55.1. Isaiah 55, verse 1, says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, 
come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's rich, right? As a believer, you're encouraged by that, right? Turn over to uh, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. So before we look at the details of the census tax, we want to make it very, very clear that this census tax is not a purchase of forgiveness by which the blood of Christ is profaned and cheapened. That's not what the census tax is. And at first glance, that's what it sort of looks like. But it's not something that cheapens the blood of Christ by which you purchase your forgiveness through your own efforts and your own resources. So that's what it's not, which leaves us with the question, what is it? God's redeemed people, they are redeemed already. They are delivered from slavery already. They are His already. And they're entering into the privilege of redemption. They're entering into the privilege of redemption. So let's take two steps back and ask a few other questions. Why would you number something? To see how many there are. And why would you care? Say that again? Sure. And why would you care? Yes. And why would you care? And why would you not want to lose them? And why do you like them all? Because they're yours. Ownership. When I get into my car, I count my kids. Make sure they're all in there. I don't count yours. Right? Ownership. This numbering is a picture of ownership. A shepherd would not count the flock of another. It doesn't matter. He would count his flock. He would number his flock. Do you do other people's taxes? Did you do your taxes? It's April 18th. You had to the 17th. You had two extra days. But you don't care about numbering someone else's. You don't have any ownership over that. When you check your bank balances and account information, you don't, you don't check other people's. You check yours. If you do check other people's, you should be arrested. That's illegal. Many times when the issue of money comes up, there's a funny dynamic that occurs. If I stepped into the pulpit this Sunday and said, okay, today we're going to talk about money. Uh, what are some of the thoughts that might potentially go through the heads of those listening? Be honest. You want more of my money, so you're going to talk about it. Yes, I love the way you phrase that. You want more of my money. You, my. It's good. I think you really captured something there. You should repent too. What else?
What else? It's generally not a yippee, I'm so excited. There's generally sort of a disdain, a discomfort, an oddness of feeling that comes over everybody when we're going to talk about tithing or giving or money or responsibility and resources toward Christ and, and the local church. And um, it, it, it gets weird quick. People are like, Ugh, I'm uncomfortable. You might be uncomfortable right now because we're talking about it. You might have baggage right now because of horrible things you may have experienced growing up. I remember growing up, we were always in a building campaign. My whole life was a building campaign with regular reminders from the pastor that we were all suffering together through this. Because if you build it, they will come. That's from the movie Field of Dreams. It's not in the Bible. And that was like the mantra of the craziness that I grew up in. It had a lot of positive things. That wasn't one of them. And he had a new Cadillac every year, but that's neither here or there. So when you talk about money, it gets weird. And uh, why, why do these thoughts, why do we have these thoughts? What, what are some reasons? I just mentioned a few. What are some others? Yeah. Yeah. Entitlement. Deserved. The love of money is indeed the root of all sorts of evils. Money isn't, but the love of it is. God, go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, guilt because of disobedience. Those go together a lot. God numbers his people because his people belong to him. We would, at this time, have paid the census tax to remind ourselves that the numbering is not about how awesome and numerous and free we are. When David arrogantly took a census of his people and armies after being provoked by Satan, his sober response in 1 Chronicles was, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. He did the census the wrong way. He did it in a way that wasn't mindful of the fact that we belong to God. He took a census saying, you belong to me. I need people to know the awesomeness that is David. And it was shortly after that, I've done a foolish thing, Lord. Forgive me. I'd like to ask a few direct questions. Do you feel entitled when it comes to money? Please don't answer out loud. It will be awkward for everybody. But actually think through the question in your head. Do you feel entitled when it comes to money? When money is talked about from the pulpit, do you see it as out of place? When you balance your checkbook, do you think at all about God? Is there a certain number that you have in mind when balancing said checkbook that if the balance is below that number, your day is ruined? Or at least your pay period is ruined? When you get a raise, does your sense of entitlement also get a raise? When you give, do you see it as a privilege in worship Or do you see it as a favor or a burden that you do begrudgingly? Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Why such a warning? If riches increase, set not your heart on them. We don't do that because we set our heart and our hope on God. 
Why? Because we are his possession. He numbers us because we belong to him. And if we are owned by God, all that we have is owned by God and nothing is off limits. So many of us can be so okay with you saying, I need to give more time to God. I need to give uh, more uh, use of my personal spiritual gifts to God. I need to give more efforts to God. I need to give my family time with God. Um, But when it comes to the money, dude, back off. I worked hard this week. It's a very normal, fleshly, yet sinful way of thinking. But if we're owned by God, he's numbered us. All that we have is owned by God and nothing is off limits. So the question that I want to look at is how do we see Christ in the census tax? Well, everybody owes the same amount first. Notice that. Everybody owes the same amount. Everybody is ransomed by the same amount. Ransom only comes by one amount. All are equally guilty of sin and iniquity before a holy God. And it is only the blood of Christ that makes a way. No exemptions are made. No exemptions are made. Redemption views all men on the same level before God and the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It wasn't okay, your ransom price is up here because I saw you smoking that cigarette behind the big rock over there. Or your ransom price is much lower this week because, well, you were very spiritual in Sunday school and you used big words like midst. Um, It's not like that. It's the same amount for everybody. Christ is our only hope. A.W. Pink says it like this, True, the Israelite was required to give a monetary ransom for his soul, But this is no more signified that salvation might be secured by the sinner's own efforts than did the furnishing of a bull or a lamb imply that the offerer was thereby purchasing God's favor. The census tax is no different than the sacrifice of the bull or the lamb. Instead, it was the Lord teaching his people in type and figure of him, Christ, who alone could make atonement for their sin. Christ, the slaying of the offerer's sacrifice, telling of the shedding of his blood, the bringing of the silver or gold, speaking of the preciousness of his blood, that each was furnished by the Israelite himself, only emphasized the truth that the sinner must, by faith, personally appropriate the Lord Jesus and place him between his sins and a holy God. No one can accept and follow Jesus for you. The census tax reminds us of that. So we have... We see Christ in the altar, the golden altar. We see Christ um, inhabiting the praises of his people. We see the incense as an aromatic prayer before God. Something's not right if it's not there. And then we see the census tax, which reminds us of the preciousness of the blood of the lamb by which we are the only way that, that we are saved and counted as righteous before God because it's the righteousness of Christ. Next week, we'll finish looking at the bronze basin, the anointing oil, and then two of my favorite Exodus characters, Bezalel and Aholiab. If we have twin sons, I'm naming them Bezalel and Aholiab. And Lindsay has no say in it. You can tell her that. Um, Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you for our time in the Word. Uh, I'm thankful that we have a mighty, mighty King and Savior who is seated at your right hand making intercession for the saints. I'm so thankful for the righteousness of Christ that allows me to pray 
to you without dying. May our prayers be like the aroma of the incense regularly before you, wholehearted, not altered in any way. Next week, we'll get to see, Lord, how the incense was to be made in a very particular way for a very particular purpose. I pray that just in, in the way that that distinct smell was pleasing to you, I pray that it would be the same with the prayers of your, of your children. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.